This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. Finding beauty in the world that God has given to us. Society conditions us to see ugliness. The television news business thrives on it. Advertising tries to make us pay attention by shocking us. Movies and novels are deemed boring unless there is something in it that is incredibly ugly, like murder or adultery. Even many fashion trends make the people who adopt them appear ugly. Please do not misunderstand. We are not talking about turning ourselves into ostriches, deliberately closing our eyes to things in the world that are wrong or dangerous. There are times in life when we all need to confront ugliness. However, our attitudes towards it needs to be those of rejection. Why did we stop seeking out things that are beautiful? Perhaps it was when society stopped seeking after God. After all, if God is all beauty, then using our wills to embrace ugliness has to be a rejection of God and an embrace of evil. This episode of the Return to Order Moment is focused upon beauty. Our first topic concerns something beautiful that endured despite destruction all around it. We begin with Mr. John Horvath's The Miracle on Maui. Is God sending us a message? It frequently happens that survivors of natural disasters will come upon touching scenes of religious objects that are unscathed amid the destruction. For example, a statue of Our Lady of Grace was found intact after Hurricane Sandy in 2012. It communicated a sense of hope to all who saw it. The media often publish stories and pictures of these scenes. Many such reports have a condescending tone toward the simple people of faith who believe in God and His providence. The secular tyranny that dominates media automatically rules out any supernatural cause for these events, preferring to attribute it to coincidence. Gradually, such awkward events that contradict the liberal, secular, and atheistic narrative fade from memory. A similar discovery just happened after the devastating wildfire in Lahaina, Hawaii. Amid the smoldering ruins of the city, there appeared not a religious statue, but a whole church and rectory intact. Naturally speaking, there is no explanation, since everything around it is in ashes. The Catholic Church is called Maria Lanaquila, which means Our Lady of Victories. It is one of the oldest and most beautiful Catholic churches on the island of Maui. The parish was established in 1846 by Father Aubert Bouillon of the Congregation of the Sacred Hearts of Jesus and Mary. The present stone structure was finished in 1873. Inside the church are paintings that are thought to be gifts of Hawaiian King Kalakaua or his sister, Queen Liliokalani. The parish is a vibrant community with numerous services, including Latin masses, weddings, and its Sacred Hearts School. Against all odds, this church stands, defying scientific explanations to explain why it survived. The secular media will never admit any hint of divine agency. Tragically, even Catholics, following the secular script, are reluctant to attribute its survival to anything supernatural. Alas, they are told the age of miracles is long past. Survivors termed this event miraculous, as reports immediately filtered out of the island. 
Many took hope from seeing the steeple stand out among the ruins. Church officials confirmed the church and rectory were intact, although the school was, quote, a little bit affected, unquote. However, the media told a different story. They reproduced pictures of the intact building and noticed that it appears in good condition. Others report that the structure still stands, but the damage is hard to estimate. The Honolulu Star Advertiser, a typical liberal daily, goes even further, speculating that while the church might look good from the outside, inspectors may order it torn down depending on the imagined structural damage on the inside. New York Times writer Julia Flynn Seiler ignored the church building entirely and delivered a lengthy editorial commenting on the fate of Lahaina's giant banyan tree planted in 1873 that fared much worse than Maria Lanaquila. She portrayed the massive tree as a spiritual center of sorts for the multicultural community. Unlike the church, the tree burst into flames, and it is not certain if the charred remains will later re-sprout to life. Such reports are to be expected. Modernity does its best to avoid the forbidden theme of whether God can intervene in history. Church teaching is radically different. God does intervene in history and changes events. Prayer can bring about changes in daily life. God can intervene physically. He has given a guardian angel to each person. Their role is, to quote the common prayer, light and guard, rule and guide their charges, even removing physical obstacles that endanger them. God can intervene by preventing natural disasters, pestilences, and drought. The church encourages the faithful to offer prayers that call upon divine aid in these circumstances. Such prayers would be idle chatter if God did not honor them by intervening. Indeed, these prayers have proven successful. Church history is full of cases where prayers stopped plagues, brought rains, or prevented catastrophes. These interventions are deemed miraculous, since they happen outside the natural course of things. Thus, God can save churches like Maria Lanaquila in Maui. Nothing, save the hardness of postmodern hearts, would prevent this explanation from being accepted as true. God does not do things without purpose. When God intervenes with extraordinary events, there must be a reason for his action. He sends a message through which the faithful can learn valuable lessons. Again, to find messages in God's intervention is not contrary to church teaching. Sometimes the messages are direct, as in the cases of the apparitions at Fatima or Lourdes. Other times, it is up to the faithful to discern these messages and to take action from their lessons. It would make sense that the Maui miracle would have a message and a corresponding lesson. Many observers see the fire as the product of negligence and complacency. Officials neglected to take the recommended measures that could have mitigated the devastation significantly. Property owners allowed brush and grass to grow, which served as fuel for the fire. On the surface, everything seemed like a Hawaiian paradise. 
Reality had all the elements for a major catastrophe. Such a physical situation reflects a moral condition that is found everywhere. So many people neglect the measures that support a virtuous life directed to the love of God. People have given in to unbridled passions that create a volatile situation of their own making. All it takes is a crisis to set these lives on fire. The violence of these fires resulted in personal disasters and shattered families. One message from the miracle of Maria Lanaquila is that even when in the midst of an immense firestorm, souls can find an unlikely refuge in Our Lady. She can transform defeat into victory, for she is Our Lady of victories. All it takes is trust in the sacred hearts of Jesus and Mary. They will not fail. They will remain unscathed amid the storm. Indeed, the age of miracles is not over. Maria Lanaquila invites desperate Catholics to believe in them once again. However, unusual beauty may be found in the modern world. It is not always a miracle. Sometimes one can find beauty in the most ordinary of places. Recently, TFP member Mr. Norman Fulkerson found it in a very ordinary place. He described the experience in his essay, Finding Light in a Walmart. There's a lot of talk in the news these days about mental health, and with good reason. In 2004, a Gallup poll recorded that 13% of adults had visited a therapist or mental health professional. In 2022, that number mushroomed to 23%. Many say the increased demand for services began shortly after the pandemic. People would not need to pay a counselor to listen to their problems if human beings would just be, well, more human. That means recognizing the person in front of you has basic needs of the soul, such as compassion. I discovered this recently during a stop at Walmart. This gargantuan megastore is the last place you would expect to find someone who cares about others. All that I wanted was one simple product. I gingerly approached an employee named Lucy to ask for help. She was talking with someone that I thought was her best friend. That person graciously stepped aside as Lucy led me to the next aisle, but could not find the item I wanted. Okay, I said, you can go back to the conversation you were having with your friend. Lucy explained that the woman was not a friend, but a regular customer. I'm actually glad you called me away, because she always latches on to me to talk about her problems, Lucy responded. She clearly did not find it easy to put up with such a person. Yet she listened to this troubled soul's problems patiently. What a consolation! I thanked Lucy for her kindness to this person and found out that what I witnessed was not an isolated incident. Lucy works in the pharmacy and explained, People will call in for a prescription and I will sometimes talk with them for half an hour. When people need medicine for some ailment, they will call for help. However, in this case, they keep Lucy on the phone because they also have sufferings of the soul about which no one seems to be concerned. Lucy confirmed this when she said that her quote-unquote counseling 
frustrates her fellow employees. This disinterested concern is the crux of the matter, and the reason why my fortuitous encounter with Lucy meant so much. In our frenetically intemperate world, taking time for fellow human beings, especially those who are suffering, is not productive. We live in what could be called a spreadsheet world, where people are merely data entries in a system to make the machine run more smoothly. This materialistic idea was expressed by Henry Ford, who once said, Why is it that every time I ask for a pair of hands, a brain comes attached? Unquote. People like Mr. Ford do not have a problem with the brain, but the soul. This mentality is so different from a person like Lucy, who is actually willing to share the burden of others. Her value as a Walmart employee is much greater than a person who occupies a place on a spreadsheet. Those who suffer from depression and mental illness pay good money for a counselor or a psychiatrist. Lucy does not charge a dime for her time. The day our paths crossed was a challenging one for me. Although I was not in need of a counselor, her solicitude for others was deeply reassuring. It is easy to lose hope in humanity. All it takes to regain that hope is to see someone who really cares and is not looking for anything in return. They are just willing to help. After leaving, I reflected on her name. Lucy is the feminine version of the given name Lucius. In Latin, it means light. How appropriate. Without realizing it, Lucy provides much-needed light in a very dark world. What Lucy did appeared to be a natural act of virtue. We can only imagine how much greater the impact of such acts could be when assisted by God's grace. This encounter fits into my Only in America article series. So many unexpected things can be found in America. This caring soul is one of them. Finding such light in a Walmart is even more extraordinary. If you ask many modern people to define beauty, you will get a modern answer. The most common response is, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. This implies that beauty is a relative concept, that you and I have different standards of beauty. This false idea comes from a period often known as the Enlightenment, which centered in France during the late 18th century. There is a much more accurate way of assessing beauty. The more like God something is, the more beautiful it is. Of course, we live in a culture that no longer seeks God. This is one reason that it no longer seeks beauty. Longtime TFP supporter Mr. Francis Sabodnik considered the nature of beauty and the many ways that the modern world runs away from it in his essay, The Rejection and Restoration of Beauty. The world around us is filled with ugliness. To fight this ugliness, we must address the willfully chosen things and change our ways accordingly. One important way to do this is to change our manner of personal appearance. Everywhere we see signs of disorder in this field. Individuals exhibit multiple and painful-looking body piercings, strangely colored and unkempt hair, tattoos galore, and mismatched, torn, 
and ugly clothing. This cult to ugliness exploded in the 60s when lax morals gave rise to lax, unconventional, and immoral fashions. Behind this trend was a revolutionary rejection of all aspects of Christian civilization. It opened the floodgate of the disordered passions that spread like a wildfire all over the world in a short amount of time. People abandoned the civilized norms of decorum that emphasize the dignity of individuals as they present themselves to society. Being pleasing to others, not comfort, was the main concern. Today, the overwhelming majority of Americans regularly wear an official uniform consisting of a t-shirt, blue jeans, ripped or otherwise, and sneakers. For more formal events, a jacket might be worn over the t-shirt accompanied by untorn jeans. In warm weather, many replace blue jeans with shorts, even at Holy Mass. In addition to the clothing, there are strange hairstyles in unappealing colors, sometimes of various combinations. Piercings include the face, ears, lips, tongue, and other places. The final defacement consists of tattoos found from head to toe with a variety of messages. Jewelry has become pagan, brutal, and tribal. Some contemporary jewelry comes in strange shapes, grossly large and disproportionate sizes, and using inferior materials. All that matters is to reject order and beauty, whatever the cost. What started in the 60s as a revolutionary rebellion against established norms has become a tsunami of the ugly, distasteful, and slovenly. This almost universal rejection of beauty has a degrading effect on the church, families, institutions, and society. Everything moves toward ugliness, and this influence filters down to the average person. Such individuals may not go to the extremes, but will adhere to some form of ugliness or bad taste in grooming. The Church and Christian civilization understood beauty to be the splendor of the truth. To the degree that something corresponds to its nature and is pleasing to the senses, it has beauty. Thus, people understood the importance of dressing appropriately, following the nature, dignity, jobs, or age of the person. People who dress slovenly, immorally, or with ripped or dirty clothing do not live up to this standard. They do not respect the needs of others to experience the beauty around them. People once understood that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit and should be adorned with this in mind. We could compare how we dress with how a beautiful tabernacle is clothed. The tabernacle veil is beautiful and made of high-quality materials to reflect he who is inside it. When we adorn ourselves, keeping in mind that we are temples of the Holy Ghost, we are telling others that we are caring for our bodies and souls as vessels of grace. It elevates and edifies our neighbor who will naturally admire. Immodest clothing degrades the person and provides grave temptations to others. Above all, it gravely offends God. 
It would be like putting a coarse and revealing burlap over the tabernacle. Immodesty is a manifestation of pride, which is the root of all vice. People are self-centered without regard for their neighbors. They also call attention to themselves by their delight in the shock value of outlandish hairstyles, makeup, clothing, and behavior. As with all revolutions, there is tremendous pressure to participate in the latest fashions. Concerned parents often seem paralyzed to action because they no longer know how to say no. The solution lies in the triumph of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. We can help Our Lady achieve her triumph by choosing and displaying authentic Catholic beauty instead of ugliness. Indeed, ugliness attracts sin and evil. Authentic beauty attracts goodness and virtue. By exhibiting and promoting beauty, souls can be attracted to Our Lord, who is the source and fullness of beauty. Thus, we should dress in a dignified and modest manner. We should wear appropriate jewelry and hairstyles. We must act as a temple of the Holy Spirit by carrying the cross of modesty, despite the mockery of others. Dressing beautifully and modestly elicits positive comments from others. If a man wears a suit and tie in public, or a woman wears a modest and beautiful dress, they will commonly receive favorable comments from others. This is a form of apostolate. When we have the courage to do what is right, Our Lady and her angels will be with us, giving us courage and consolation. Our good choices will also have an impact on others, who may consider improving their choices. This battle is a kind of spiritual warfare, where everything depends upon the fidelity of a few. Sometimes, advances were made inches at a time until victory was achieved. With God's grace, we can also help establish this triumph of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, by influencing those around us in our daily lives. Occasionally, usually once a year, many Americans go on something called a vacation. While many search for excitement or thrills, others use their vacations to search for beauty. That search takes some to mountains, others to lakes or oceans, still others walk through great and historic cities. Mr. Edward Benson was so moved by a recent vacation that he wrote about it in his essay, Finding a World of Peace and Order on Michigan's Mackinac Island. Balance and order are hallmarks of the Christian life. Indeed, we hear that we are in the world, but not of the world. Those who only think of this world are doomed to secular nihilism. Those who think only of the next are unable to feed and clothe themselves. Order enables members of a society to live together in peace and mutual respect. Our modern world only pays attention to extremists. It ignores and even ridicules balance and order. Even in the world of leisure and recreation, we fill our time off with a nonstop series of frenetic experiences. 
Many return home more exhausted than they were when they left. Their return to work becomes a kind of break from the rigors of the vacation. Perhaps it is time to consider the word recreation. Separate the syllables, as in recreation, and the meaning is obvious. It is a time to be created anew, to vacate the hustle and bustle of daily life and regain energy, health, and perspective. I had the joy of such a vacation recently. The location was idyllic, the Grand Hotel on Mackinac Island, Michigan. The first thing that people usually notice about the island is that one cannot drive there. You get there on a ferry boat. On arrival, you quickly see that there are no motor vehicles. The horseless carriage was banned there in 1898 because it scared the horses. Even today, one walks, bicycles, or rides in a horse-drawn carriage. The absence of motorized transportation, other than a single ambulance, works little hardship. The island covers only 4.35 square miles. An 8.2-mile-long paved road runs around its circumference. The Michigan State Parks Commission owns over 80% of the island. That area is undeveloped. Like much of the Great Lakes region, the first Europeans to arrive there were Jesuit missionaries. For the island, that missionary was Father Claude Dublon, S.J., who spent, or rather endured, the winter of 1670 there. Father Dablon's successor was the famous missionary explorer Jacques Marquette, who moved the mission to the Upper Peninsula, naming his mission St. Ignace after St. Ignatius of Loyola. In 1671, the island was described in Relations des Jésuites de la Nouvelle France, quote, its fisheries, its phenomena of wind and tide, and the tribes who now and in the past have made it their abode. A favorite resort for all the Algonquin tribes, many are returning to it since the peace with the Iroquois. On this account, the Jesuits have begun a new mission, opposite Mackinac, called St. Ignace. Thither have fled the Hurons, driven from the Chequamanon Bay by fear of the Sioux, the Iroquois of the West." Unquote. In 1715, the French constructed a ford on the Lower Peninsula and founded the parish church of St. Anne. When the British conquered and then abandoned that fort, they floated the church building over to Mackinac Island. The parish replaced that building in 1874, but the state of Michigan reconstructed it as part of the rebuilt Fort Michilimackinac in the early 60s. St. Anne's Parish on the island is still active and maintains records going back to 1695. The roughly one square mile of developed area can be divided into four parts. A small village is replete with tourist shops. Fudge is a local specialty. Restaurants, small hotels, and ferry docks. For the most part, the village is surrounded by so-called cottages, most of them, including the official governor's mansion of the state of Michigan, were built during the late 19th century. The third area is a restored British fort, 
built during the American War for Independence and subsequently used as a U.S. Army post until 1895. The Grand Hotel, which is a kind of trademark for the island, occupies the last area. The hotel, painted bright white and faced by a 660-foot front porch, supposedly the longest in the world, can be seen from the ferries long before reaching their island berths. A consortium of two railroads and a steamship line initially financed the hotel's construction to spur tourism. It opened in 1887. Originally built entirely of Michigan white pine, its survival is remarkable. Not only was it spared from fire, a sophisticated sprinkler system is there today, but it also faced bankruptcy several times until becoming prosperous after World War II. Indeed, the age and architecture are part of the place's charm, but it is no mere museum. The Grand Hotel is a living, breathing space, a chance to enter history. You can walk through the hotel's public areas and see an abundance of historical photographs, including several presidents of the United States, and then go into the lobby, or parlor in Grand Hotel usage, the dining room, or onto a porch, and do precisely what those tourists did a century ago. Players have used the golf course continuously since 1898. In a world obsessed with modernity, it is refreshing to see an organization that protects and celebrates its traditions. The Grand Hotel maintains 19th century traditions in yet one more way. The hotel's website informs potential visitors, quote, because every evening at the Grand Hotel is a special occasion. After 6.30 p.m. in the main areas of the hotel and after 5.30 p.m. in the main dining room, dresses, skirts, blouses, dress sweaters, and dress slacks for ladies are preferred, while gentlemen are required to wear a suit coat, necktie, and dress pants, no denim or shorts. This applies for all areas inside the hotel, including the parlor, lobby, terrace, and main dining room, with the exception of the cupola bar. Children 12 years and older are expected to be in dress similar to adults. Unquote. The management means every word of their dress code. It exerts a profound civilizing effect. The guests were clearly enjoying themselves, but the tone of the conversations in the parlor were low, respecting the ability of my little family to drink in the ambiance and take joy in each other's companionship. Perhaps the most common expression was, excuse me, as people circulated through the public areas. As my wife, daughter, and I strolled into the parlor from the Salle à Manger, as the antique lettering over the dining room door states, we were delighted to find a harpist providing a delightful background for the various conversations in the massive space. Another aspect of the hotel is its remarkable setting. 
The entire porch and many guest rooms offer stunning views of Lake Huron and the Mackinac Bridge, spanning the straits between Michigan's upper and lower peninsulas. The lawns are expansive and lush. Flower gardens abound. Perhaps the most remarkable thing about Mackinac Island is its balance between the works of God and the works of man. Although overnight camping is not allowed, the four-fifths of the island occupied by the state park are essentially pristine. The views of Lake Huron are spectacular, although swimming in their cold water is only for the hardy. The village is quaint and charming, and especially suited to a nighttime ramble after the day tourists have retreated. Those who demand the frenetic activity of the modern vacation may be disappointed. For those who wish for a world of quiet charm, this orderly world is the perfect place for modern man's overstressed soul. It is indeed recreation in the best sense of the word. This concludes Finding Beauty in a World that God Has Given to Us. Thank you for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. We publish a new episode every week as Tuesday becomes Wednesday at midnight. You can hear our program in two ways. The first is to subscribe through your favorite podcast provider. Another is to go to our website, www.returntoorder.org, and click on the podcast link at the top of the page which will take you to a list with the most recent podcast on top. Listeners can help Return to Order be more effective by giving us a five-star rating with their favorite podcast service. Subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will find the Return to Order moment online. We would also like to recommend Mr. John Horvath's book, Return to Order. It is available as a free download on our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2023 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property. TFP.